Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. You know, shortly after my adult conversion to Christ, uh, a few friends and I started a house church. We thought we were um, duplicating the ecclesiology of the first century Christians. That's what we thought at the time. And, of course, this house church focused uh, on the preaching of the Word. I mean, that's kind of the what it was all about. It was almost like a glorified Bible study. But the climax of our, quote, worship together was, again, the preaching of the Word, proclamation of the Word of God. And <clears throat> at the time, I considered that, well, this is as it should be. This is kind of an extension of the ancient Jewish notion of the synagogue. You know, after the destruction of the Jewish temple and, and the priesthood, uh, Judaism survived as kind of a synagogue-type religion. Well, that's in the first few years of my adult, after my adult conversion. As time went on, I'm reading the New Testament and becoming more aware of how different Christian traditions are uh, in worship. I began to see the temple, the idea of the temple, was much more prominent and important than I had thought. I mean, even in the Old Testament, uh, for instance, in Psalm 27, one thing I ask of the Lord... One thing I ask of the Lord, this I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may gaze on the loveliness of the Lord and contemplate his temple. I mean, this the temple was the focal point, not only of the priesthood and sacrifice and worship, but also it was a focal point for devotion uh, in the, in the uh, ancient world. Jesus, of course, the temple plays an important role in what scholars call Second Temple Judaism, right? Uh, so when I became a Catholic, I was dismayed because I thought, where can I find a comprehensive study of the temple uh, and the priesthood from a Catholic perspective? And I couldn't find one. Uh, I came across a Methodist preacher from England who was also a New Testament scholar, Margaret Barker. She had developed something called temple theology. That's fine as far as it goes, but there wasn't any thoroughgoing Catholic understanding of the temple presence in the life of God's people. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to say we now have one. It's called the House of the Lord, a Catholic biblical theology of God's temple presence in the Old and New Testament. Its author is uh, Dr. Stephen Smith. Uh, Stephen's been with us before. Uh, he's author of The Word of the Lord, Seven Essential Principles for Catholic Scripture Study. We've talked with him about that book. And uh, he teaches uh, uh, graduate courses in biblical studies at Mount St. Mary Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland. And he has, again, published, this is an outstanding book, The House of the Lord, A Catholic Biblical Theology of God's Temple Presence in the Old and New Testament. Stephen, great to have you back. Al, uh, and to you and all your audience, greetings from Mount St. Mary Seminary. And as always, uh, a hearty uh, thank you. It's great to be on your show, as always. I think the last time we were together, we may have been talking about, uh, of course, Scripture and maybe talking about that book, The Word of the Lord. And yes. you, uh, you, you, you flatter me with your kind words, but it is great to have this book out there, and we're certainly hoping it's helping lots of folks, Catholics and non-Catholics alike. Yeah, it's, <clears throat> I don't know anything quite like it. I mean, there was, a, in fact, I think Brant Petrie in the forward mentions uh, Beale's book from years ago, uh, but it's from a right. Protest Protestant perspective. I don't know anything uh, recently uh, 
you know, dealing with Catholic biblical theology of God's temple, which is what this does. So congratulations. I think you've really made Thank a contribution yeah, here. certainly nothing that I've found. That's sometimes why books get written, right? You, you read stuff, and you're like, <laughs> well, <laughs> what about the Catholic perspective? Right. Further, I, have to chuckle, I have to chuckle with you and say, as always, I'm reminded of how many points of resonance there is in our sort of conversion stories. I'm a revert to the faith. Right. But in listening to your opening there, um, you know, and with all, res- with all respect and charity to our Protestant brothers and sisters, I too was in that boat where I was in an evangelical church searching for that early Acts 2 church that we read about in Acts, <laughs> right. and thinking that we had discovered it in, uh, you know, modern Chicago. <laughs> but what's, what's funny often about these, these, these things is, again, with all respect to our Protestant brothers and sisters, this kind of reinventing the wheel thing is sort of humorous to me, because there's always an attempt to get back to that kind of ancient Jewish Jesus that they talk about, and yet it's often done without looking at the Old Testament. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Jesus' Bible, of course, so it's kind of an irony there. Right, right. Yeah, I, it is. It is. The, same, the same is true, right, with, the, with the, the whole question of the Deuterocanonical books, those seven books of the Old Testament that Protestants, by and large, don't accept, and they would say, well, we take the, the, the Jerusalem or Palestinian canon, which is closer to Jesus, when in fact the Bible that Jesus certainly would have read, would have had books in it that uh, would not be read by Protestants today, like the books of Maccabees and Syriac right. and so on. No, no, that's, <laughs> that's absolutely true. Well, let, let me ask you a, a basic question. The phrase, uh, temple presence, what yeah. does that mean, temple presence? Yeah, so you, you use a couple um, phrases in the book repetitively, and one of them is the, the temple presence or temple theology. And by that, I mean to get at what you were talking about in your introduction, that there is this motif, there's this concept, uh, there is this thread, as I call it, that really runs underneath and really throughout the Old and the New Testaments, and that is of the house of God, the temple. And for many who may be listening, you know, it's, it's maybe no fault of, of the audience here, uh, but I, I don't think that we've often gotten good catechesis, first of all, on the Old Testament in general, and then maybe more specifically about the temple. What is it? Why is it always kind of looming in the background? Yep. What is its significance? And, and so um, in the book, the, the phrase temple presence kind of gets at this idea of not only its um, central importance, but also that there's something mysterious going on with it. It's not just uh, a, a glorious-looking building, right? It, right? It's really something that's really ever-present all the way from Genesis through clear through to the book of Revelation. That's what we try to explore in this book. Now, this you mentioned Genesis, and I think listeners uh, are saying to themselves, wait a minute, uh, Genesis starts with a garden, and I don't think any right. temple comes on the scene until, you know, Solomon. So right. what, what is the temple presence yeah, in yeah. Eden? Yeah, so uh, uh, one of the uh, fun parts of the research for this book was going back through, I mean, I've been teaching Genesis for over a decade now, and kind of uh, explaining some of these concepts of how there is a kind of, a, you might say, invisible or maybe sacramental uh, image of the temple already there on the first pages of the Bible. We don't really encounter it the way we think of it, as you said, until you get to Solomon's temple. Or maybe you can go back to like the Exodus, time of Exodus, right. and you have the tabernacle, tabernacle and wheels, as I like to call it. But there is certainly, before, um, before uh, David and before Moses and all these other great figures where we have the temple in view, we have many, many developments from the very beginning. Um, and what's really fascinating about it, maybe we'll talk about this more, is 
you know, as I say a number of times in the book, where you have a temple, you have a priest. And so there's been kind of a double blindsidedness about, about missing this in Genesis um, in, re, in modern times. And so when you look at Genesis, the question is, well, how do we read that? Right. Is it simply a scientific book of how God created the world some, you know, 6,000 years ago, as many of our you know, non-Catholics may read it in a kind of a literalistic way? Mm-hmm. Or is it simply a fable, the way that secular scholars read it? Or what's going on there? And um, one, of the, one of the really great um, fun things about, again, doing the research in this book is exploring all of that ancient, the ancient primary sources and how they understood that there really was much, much more going on in Genesis that sometimes we, we think. And I'll give you a little tagline here. Say, you know, the book of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is not as much about the creation of the world, although it obviously is about that. It's really more about the creation of worship, mm. that humanity and all creations created for worship. And so we bring in principles here of the, the number seven and the Sabbath and really how all of the images in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 point to this greater reality of a, a kind of a, a holy mountain. That's really what Eden is. It's a holy mountain in which God puts his people for worship. Stephen, hold it there. We'll take a break. Come right back and pick it up from the holy mountain and uh, the whole idea also of sacred space. My guest, Dr. Stephen Smith, his book, The House of the Lord. A Catholic Biblical Theology of God's Temple Presence in the Old and New Testaments. We're going to continue in just a moment here on Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. This week at Ave Maria Radio's Poll of the Week, we want to know, is not wearing a mask while not vaccinated considered lying now? Let us know what you think by going to AveMariaRadio.net, scrolling down on the homepage, and clicking on Poll of the Week. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Stephen Smith. Looking at the idea of the temple through the Old and New Testaments, his book is called The House of the Lord, a Catholic biblical theology of God's temple presence in the Old and New Testaments. And we started here with uh, Genesis. And most people would say, well, I don't see any temple there in, in Genesis. What do you mean by God's temple presence in those early chapters of Genesis? I think most people think of it as the story of the creation of the world, maybe the story of the fall as well. So pick it up, uh, if you would, uh, Stephen. Again, the temple presence is in Genesis, uh, has to do with the concept of the mountain of the Lord. Yeah, so there's so much evidence actually uh, to talk about uh, on this topic, L, that it really takes about three chapters in the book to go through all of it. I don't think I even exhaust all of it. I, I think take some of the main lines. Let's just give a couple to your audience just to get them thinking about it. One is one of the oldest names for God that the, I mean, there's many names that the Hebrews have in reverence for God. Um, but one of them, the uh, oldest ones is El Shaddai. And as you actually look at the Hebrew of it, um, one of the, the sort of literal translation of that is El or God, the God of the mountain. Hmm. Um, they say, well, where's the mountain You're right. uh, in, in, in Genesis? And Truth be told, it's not there explicitly, but like many things in Scripture, it comes out sort of implicitly and in many corroborating ways. One of the corroborating ways is in Genesis 2, you have the the four rivers that flow out of the garden, and many have seen this as a kind of identification that this is the center place of of the earth, and not only the center place, but also this kind of mountain rising up. So implicit enough. Okay. Mm -hmm. But then you go to a book like Ezekiel, and things get really 
interesting. In the prophet Ezekiel, in uh, chapter 28, uh, he talks about Eden as the mountain of God. This is one of the most explicit places we have elsewhere in Scripture that looks back to Eden, not just as a garden, but really as a three-dimensional world. And the way he describes it is very fascinating. Um, you have sort of uh, an image of this high priestly figure in the garden, which is upon a mountain, Mount Eden. And the more you begin looking at the, the whole question of mountains, we soon realize that, um, okay, well, if Eden is a mountain, as Ezekiel is telling us, uh, are there any other mountains of significance in the Old Testament? And pretty soon, we're, we're just, we have a more than a handful. We've got uh, Mount Ararat, which is, of course, where God makes a covenant with Noah. We've got Mount Moriah, where Adam makes his covenant with Abraham. Uh, we've got, of course, the big one, Mount Sinai, which is where God covenants with Moses and all the Israelites, and we get the Ten Commandments. And we go from there on to David in Mount Zion, which is, of course, where the temple is founded. And so as, as I talk about in the book, there's this recurrent pattern of God showing up and addressing his people on mountains. In fact, he makes these covenantal or relational bonds with his people in these places. And it all really gets started um, back in Genesis. But as I said, a, a really interesting thing that's happened in the 19th and 20th centuries is not only that the, uh, the kind of German liberal scholars miss this idea of the temple, because the fathers didn't miss it and the medievals didn't miss it, believe me. Hmm. Um, but they also kind of overlooked or diminished the role of priesthood in the Old Testament. Right. I think this is actually the sleeper part of this book. Although it's all about the temple, underneath it and very close to it is this whole idea of recovering priesthood mm -hmm. in the Old Testament. If you have a temple, you've got a priest. Right. That's how Adam is portrayed, and really the story goes from there. Now this, this theme picks up uh, and becomes in, uh, more explicit as it goes along. Um, you've got to, uh, we jump forward here to the uh, the Exodus, and then the t uh, the building of the tabernacle. Right. Uh, and most people would probably see a connection between this idea of the temple and the tabernacle, right? Yes, indeed. So um, there's a there's a whole chapter in the book where we talk about this. Uh, we kind of call it the primordial temple, but it's, it's this uh, sometimes called the tent of meeting, but it's the place where God meets his people on their long, circuitous journey through the wilderness towards the promised land. And there's some very, very long, and frankly for many people they are difficult chapters to read in Exodus where, pardon me, Moses and Aaron are given these very detailed, really explicitly detailed instructions from God into how to construct this this house for worship for him, that they will move as they navigate through the wilderness. And in many ways, they are, as I said, tedious for the modern reader. From Exodus 25, really, till the end of that book, it, until you get to the very end of the book, then you see the, the purpose for all this precision, and that is that God is going to inhabit this. Yes. And so at the very end of Exodus, uh, chapter 40, uh, we come to the high point where the glory of the Lord fills this uh, this this vestibule, this this tent with his very own presence, and even the great Moses and Aaron can't go in. They just have to sort of fall on their faces. And that gets back to this idea, El, you were talking about temple presence, that it's always much more than simply 
a building. It's about yes. an encounter with the divine. Yes. That's what Adam and Eve have in the garden. That's what Israel is called to again and again as it's moving this, you know, why, why are they constructing these tent poles and putting all this stuff up? And moving around? Well, it's because they believe that they enjoy in a special way God's own presence. Mm. And the, the Hebrew term for this is very interesting. It's Shekinah. Um, oh, some, some of us from the South may pronounce it Shekinah, right. but it's actually Shekinah. Okay. It, 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 it's this idea of God's own glorious presence with his people. And that's what it's really all about. So this, the, the idea of temple is really the, is a reference to the place where God meets his people. Is that? Yes. And God, uh, yeah, God's and presence think... indwells that space. Right. And we, as Christians, exactly, as Christians, we have to think about this in terms really of the incarnation, right? This is the best yeah. way to come at it. It's the yeah. simplest way to come at it. Because all these various manifestations, the kind of, um, you know, shadowy way it's definitely there in Genesis on the mountain, the way it's there in the tabernacle back in the wandering period, the way it's there in the Temple of Solomon and the later temple in Jesus' day, all of those you could say are sort of incarnational um, realities that prepare us for the true incarnation with a capital I, and that's Jesus of Nazareth. Yes. Um, when we, what really reaches ahead in this book is about halfway through when we turn from the Old to the New Testament, we begin studying the life of Jesus in light of this whole thread of temple um, kind of foreshadowings that precede him. So you get to something like, uh, this is just powerful, right? In, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says at one point, something greater than the Temple of Solomon is here. Yes. Think about that just for a moment. If you pause and think about what he's saying, what could possibly be greater yeah. than the Temple in Judaism? Nothing other than God himself. So it's a kind of claim to his divinity, once again, but it also points to this whole dynamic of the Temple shifting from this sort of brick-and-mortar where God was present uh, to the, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he is the temple. He is the true, oh. true temple as the Son of God in the New Testament and in our lives. Oh, that, that's, that's remarkable uh, to see that consistency. Let me just go, I don't want to go too far on this, but I'm curious. Sure. I know there have been some Jewish thinkers like Michael Wishograd who uh, mm -hmm. do a lot with the idea of God's uh, indwelling presence in the um, in the among the people of Israel, how close are they to recognizing that this indwelling of God can also take place in the flesh? Uh, how far are they from an incarnational idea? Yeah, boy, that's a great. That's really a great question, one I have contemplated myself. I don't really get too much today in the book into the state of you know contemporary. Jewish religion, Judaism right. today, I right. uh, do interact with a lot of kind of, um, you know, ancient rabbinic sources and stuff. I, I don't really, I, honestly, I don't know. I wish I did know. I, sometimes I, I, I it, you know, when I met my most optimistic about this kind of ecumenical and evangelistic, uh, you know, role that we yeah. as Catholics have in reaching out to our, our, our Jewish brothers and sisters, sometimes I do feel very optimistic and I've had great conversations. At other times, one of the reasons I think it's complicated is much like Christianity, Judaism is, is variegated, and there's <laughs> very right. there's kind of secular Judaism, just like there's kind of lukewarm yeah. Catholicism, and so it really, I think it depends. But some of the most exciting things that are happening, at least in biblical theology, on this question is that there are a lot of voices that I think they're beginning to get. John Levinson, uh, some of yes. a few of your yes, um, that's right. listeners may be familiar with him, and others are, are, are beginning to talk about it. And not only the, the, uh, the, the Jewish voices, but also Protestants. You mentioned 
Uh, Margaret Barker and uh, Gordon Wenham is another one. Mm -hmm. Greg Deal. These are all Protestant scholars that I interact with in the book, and they're all looking to and talking about things like priesthood. Yeah. And they're doing it um, not from a Catholic perspective, but they're just looking at the data and saying, hey, there's something there that we've been missing for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be interesting to so see how this goes on. Yeah. Yeah, there's been a real, in the last generation, there's been just an explosion of uh, New Testament studies in this, in this field. Uh, now, when, let's talk about the incarnation here. Jesus says, um, he says a greater than temple is here, uh, in Solomon's temple. When he enters the temple, his father's house, and he cleanses the temple, what's going on? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question, because this is one of those passages that for a long time it just kind of it, it perplexed me, and there's still things about it that certainly do. It's not like, you know, I've got it all figured out here. Yeah. But I think I, I, I understand why you and many others use the phrase cleanse the temple. I'm trying to change my vocabulary. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll tell you why. Good. That it's wrong. I mean, certainly in one sense he does that. But I think... The, the kind of cultural understanding we have of that is sort of like Jesus was hot and bothered, but in a holy way, and went in and kind of, you know, as the <laughs> modern parlance goes, kick butt and take names at all this hypocrisy <laughs> right. going on. Right, and, right. and I think there's a sense in which that, that is the case. There is a sense in which he is kind of prophetically declaring the holiness of God's house and how it has been neglected, by, especially by those who were, should have taken the greatest care of it, meaning the high priests and the temple authorities. But there's another sense in which um, I think there's something even more deeply prophetic about what's happening there. Because in the context of the temple, it's a busy, busy place, right? So wherever this occurs, clearly there's a lot of commotion, a lot of activity already with people, you know, trying to purchase animals for sacrifice and things like that. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, his going in and, and causing this, this sort of holy uproar, as, as it were, would have done a couple of things. One, it would have got the attention of the powers that be, no doubt about it. But mm -hmm. secondly, it would have made a very symbolic gesture, I think, about what was coming in just about a generation. So we, we, we today um, are, are unfortunately suffering through still the end of the historical critical method, and people will say, well, when Jesus cleansed the temple, that was really just the evangelist writing about this long after the temple right, construction, right. because he could have never foreseen that. You know, that would involve supernatural prophecy. Right? Right, <laughs> One of the right. things that the, the Church Fathers saw, and that we, I think we need to understand Jesus really had uh, this, uh, this divinity within him always, and so while he's fully human, he's fully God, and he makes a prophetic statement then about the temple's ultimate destruction and the end of sacrifices, not just for an hour, but forever. Interesting. Hold, hold it there. We'll come back. So I want to make sure I got, have this straight. We'll come back and pick it up uh, as Jesus uh, prophetically enters the temple and uh, projects uh, what its uh, future might be. My guest is Dr. Stephen Smith, the book, The House of the Lord. And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta with Dr. Stephen Smith of Mount St. Mary Seminary, looking at his, this great contribution, The House of the Lord, a, Bi a Catholic biblical theology of God's temple presence in the Old and New Testaments. We were talking about Jesus, who, of course, uh, is the... the, the the dwelling place of God par excellence. He enters yeah. the um, uh, Herodian temple 
And, uh, yeah, the common, we talk about cleansing the temple. But what, if I understand you correctly, his action there is actually an enacted prophecy. Is that what's going on? I, I think so. And actually, to give credit where credit's due, the person who helped me see this even more clearly than I was seeing it at the time and I attribute him in the book, is a wonderful um, evangelical scholar by the name of Nicholas Perrin, P-E-R-R-I-N. He wrote a book called Jesus the Temple. He's got a whole chapter about this where he basically explains, and once you see it, it's hard not to see it, that what what it seems like is going on here is that Jesus is playing the role of, you know, Isaiah or Jeremiah, playing the role of the prophet in this way, in that his action, while it is in many ways, of course, condemning uh, the hypocrisy going on and all that, is like the prophets of old warning of of this coming destruction of the temple you see this when the temple was first destroyed in the warnings the dire warnings of people like jeremiah and i think nicholas perrin's uh, explanation for, for me helps explain a lot and I, the way i talk about it then is what he was really doing that day it seems is bringing about a, a kind of a temporary cessation or halting of the sacrifices in the temple and this is what happens ultimately in 70 AD, so just a generation later, when the Romans, of course, invade Jerusalem, this four-year war, and then destroy Jerusalem, and of course destroy the temple, and the, and the sacrifices there cease forever. And then you only have to read a book like Hebrews to begin to see, well, how do the Christian um, authors of the New Testament begin to build upon that? Well, they begin to talk about how this earlier temple was just a shadow, and the earlier priesthood was just a shadow of that greater temple and the greater priesthood that was coming, which is Jesus. So it was pretty fascinating stuff. That's that's incredible. Now, so did the temple uh, of his statement, John's, uh, I think it's John's inner inner, uh, palation there, that he's speaking of the temple of his body. Of course, Christians think then, okay, his body, hmm, the temple of his body well, that in one hand is a kind of a physical space occupied by an itinerant Jewish rabbi in the first century there. But when we right, think of right. his body, we think of the mystical union of Christ and his church, this body of communion, this body of membership, this body of people. Uh, all these run together? I think so. And I, I would even go further and say an, another kind of word that's really predominates in this book is, is the sacramental dimension, right? And so for the early church, as when you read, for example, uh, you know, that famous quote, I know you've uh, read it and are familiar, familiar as readers with it, from Justin Martyr, where he talks about the worship of the early Christians. Yes. Here we are out in the very, very early second century, and he's describing the liturgy of the early Christians, how they um, read the memoirs of the apostles, that is to say, the, the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And he gets down to talking about the Eucharist, right? We see this already in St. Paul, the way he describes this, uh, the Supper of the Lamb and the Paschal Sacrifice of our Lord in, in books like 1 Corinthians. And so I think they, what they deeply understood, and I don't know that we're always, we're always there, right? We want to be, we're trying, we're doing our best, but we can improve. But what they understood is that when they came to Mass and they worshipped, they weren't just remembering Jesus, they were participating in that new temple that you describe, which is his own body. And by taking it into their themselves, by eating the body and blood of the Lord in the holy sacrifice of the Mass, they were participating. They were doing what Paul told them to do, which is become living sacrifices, right? Not a sacrifice on the altar in a in a, a concrete sense, but in a spiritual and sacramental yeah. sense. They were becoming living sacrifices, being united to the Lord 
in the Eucharist. And so that, that hasn't stopped, Al. That, that continues today. So uh, one of the things that's exciting about this book is just as a, a Catholic and as a father and a husband myself, I can take a lot of these things back to my own work week and yeah. back to my own yeah. life and think about, you know, the, the deeper realities that are going on even when we go up for communion. So, so it should be the source and summit of our lives. So we are inhabiting the temple of Christ's body at Mass, and in a sense, he's inhabiting us as well. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, you know, the, the Gospels, what they really, what they really um, try to highlight is that Jesus is the new temple. John, you've mentioned the passage in John's Gospel where this revelation comes to John, and by the way, it only comes to him after the resurrection. He says, after the res- Jesus was raised from the dead, they remember that Jesus said this. And <laughs> right. So that's when John says, you know, okay, I'm getting it now, yeah. John chapter 2. But um, saying Paul will talk about how he'll take that image of Christ the temple and say, okay, well, he's the temple, and he's the cornerstone of the temple, so he kind of refines it a little bit further. Mm-hmm. He's not just the temple, he's the cornerstone, which means that all of you as members are kind of bricks in that wall of the temple. So in other words, we're connected to his body. He's the head and we are the body. So there's a continuity there that, uh, that brings it all together. Yeah. No. Um, now, let, let me then, wherever there's a temple, there's a, a priesthood. So let's talk then about the priesthood that's associated with this temple in uh, post-incarnation. Um, how, right. how does the—Jesus, uh, of course, is the, the priest. I mean, uh, everybody has their priesthood as uh, really—there's really only one priest, I guess, and that priest right, is Jesus, right. and uh, all priesthood is actually derivative from that one priesthood. Right. Uh, when, when does it become— how soon does it become explicit uh, that we are we are dealing with a new uh, we have a new priest Jesus? Book of Hebrews makes that clear. Right. When is it clear that we have a new priesthood that's mystically united to Christ that is acting in persona Christi? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're, we're talking about from the very beginning, I would say the evidence is already there in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. I think you look to someone like Saint Paul. Or, again, I mentioned Hebrews, because Hebrews just goes on and on. I'll tell you, by the way, what I think is going on is the book of Hebrews is sort of fascinating to me. I've always tried to, um, you know, do my best to, to peel back some of the mysteries in this book, and yeah. I, I hope I've attempted to do that in this book. I think what might be going on in that book of Hebrews is that here we have early Christianity, and all this talking here about Melchizedek and Jesus the high priest how do we make sense of this? I think one way of making sense of it may be that there are still many hangers-on in Judaism that are Jewish Christians, or at least they're somehow torn between their loyalty to the old temple mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. Christianity. And I see this book as trying to cut through all of that and make sense of it, which is why he goes on and on and he says things like, you know, uh, that you are uh, uh, guarantors of a, a, a greater covenant. So he's not putting the old covenant down, but he's putting it in its proper um, proportion mm-hmm. uh, in, in juxtaposition of Jesus. And he calls Jesus the eternal high priest. So what he's really doing there is talking about um, and helping them make sense of all this tradition that you have through your ancestral religion of Judaism was good, but it was simply all preparation for what was to come in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then from there you go out to the Church Fathers, and it's sort of all over the place, not just the language and understanding of, of Jesus' priesthood, but also 
as each one of us is a priest in his, if you will, order, right, in his, uh, in his person. We are all, in some ways, called to sacrifice ourselves um, in, in, in living out the gospel. Yes. Now, when we get, reach the book of Revelation, the concept of the temple, does it then expand to include the redeemed creation? That's a really wonderful point. I, I, think it, I think that's a good way of putting it, and, uh, although I would also say that that theme has been sort of dormantly underneath the Scripture all along. In other words, once we get out of the book of Genesis, after the fall of our first parents, we be, how do we relate what happened there to the rest of the Bible? I think in some ways it's not trying to shove us back into Eden, but it's trying to help us reappropriate what we had in Eden and that is that we are all made in God's image and likeness, and that has been lost. So you could say that in some sense the whole story of Israel, from, from Abraham all the way upward, all the way into the New Testament, is a kind of God's quest to help his people recover that intimacy, that union, and that image and likeness. Everything he does, really from the giving of the law, the tabernacle, the temple, his forgiveness, his mercy, even his discipline is all related to helping them turn back to him yes. and realize that they need his, his mercy and grace and to recover that image and likeness of God. Because on our own, we can't do that. We need his help to do it. We need his grace. Right. And then that sets up, I think, the New Testament where Jesus is the new temple. He's the new Adam. He's the new Moses. And all these sort of typologies, we call them, right, is reminding us that he is, here's a fancy word, but recapitulating or perfecting and helping us to recover that which was lost back in Eden. So I guess my point is, yeah, by the time you get to Revelation, I think there's already been a lot of kind of echoes all the way along that God wants, is longing, he's longing for us, he wants us, and he's longing for the whole of creation to be renewed and to find its peace in him. Yeah. So ultimately, yeah. I think by the time you get to that, you know, new Jerusalem coming down out of, uh, out of heaven in the book of Revelation, that, that marvelous scene, in some ways, it's almost a kind of return and renewal all the way back to the beginning of the whole story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's right. I mean, I, I agree. It, it makes sense to me. And at a, at a at a higher level too. I mean, we begin in a garden and we end in a city. You know, I mean, there's been a that's development right. Right. through this. Ah, uh, very good. Um, uh, this, everybody who's involved in church architecture ought to be taking a course in this. It seems to me. <laughs> Yes, well, and I'm, I'm, I'm certainly no, no architect of any kind. And I do appreciate and admire those who are, who are committed to this, especially in, in light of Vatican II uh, and all that I think it was attempting to do and did do, but sometimes we have to kind of speak of recovery. We have to recover that as well. But I do have a little bit of a nod at the very end of the book to architecture, to beauty, to art, to music. Uh, there's sort of a, an epilogue in the book where I try to make just a few connections between this temple presence in the scriptures and the early church. And I look, for example, at those great uh, churches that were built by um, St. Helena in the Holy Land and, and even what preceded them in the first and second uh, century and third century leading up to that. And how, in a sense, you could say that all of this temple stuff, this temple theology and scripture, it wasn't lost on the early Christians. It right. certainly wasn't lost in the liturgy and the Eucharist. But it also wasn't lost even in terms of house, how um, houses of worship were ordered, right? Facing the east mm -hmm. and um, the, the cross-shaped pattern and so much more seems to be building upon. And that's just the way Catholicism works, right? It doesn't, it doesn't negate, right? Just so we were talking earlier about the Old Testament, 
um, being left behind. We don't negate it. Right? We build upon it. Right. Well, let me tell you, this is a great uh, contribution you've made, Stephen, and I'm looking forward to really spending many hours in it. And thank you for being Thanks with so me much. today. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. God bless you. God bless your audience. We'll stay in touch. Dr. Stephen Smith, The House of the Lord, A Catholic Biblical Theology of God's Temple Presence in the Old and the New Testaments. It's, a, it's really a masterpiece.